Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vibe, vision, impact, voice, All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of A Seat at Our Table, uh, featuring our wonderful uh, panelists today uh, that we are joined by. It has been a while since our last podcast. Uh, We have not recorded a session since the elections when we were so optimistic uh, for a new new year, a new administration, and all the wonderful change that was going to come with it. Uh, Ever since, there's been a lot that has happened, a lot that we didn't expect with the turn of a new year. Six days into it, we saw an insurrection. Then the week after, we saw an impeachment. And the week after, we were celebrating an inauguration. So lots to catch up on in how this year has unfolded. Uh, And without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and switch it over to our wonderful speakers. Before I do, my name is Warda Amir. I co-chaired the WCAP CBRN Working Group, and uh, just happy to be here and happy to be joined by all of you. Turning it over to you, Lauren. Thanks so much, Warda, and thanks for uh, scene setting again, what what brings us, uh, all of us, to to this table uh, figuratively in this podcast and issues that we've uh, come back to um, over the course of the last year. Uh, My name is Lauren Williams, and I am also a member of the WCAP Chem uh, Bio Radiological Nuclear Working Group, as well as a member of the uh, Truman National Security Project and other organizations here in Washington, D.C. Really happy to be here. All right. Thank you so much, Lauren. And over to you, Ali. Thanks very much, Warda. My name is Ali Wine. I'm a senior analyst with the Global Macro Practice at Eurasia Group, uh, focusing mainly on uh, U.S.-China relations. And I'm just really excited to be here. And on the podcast, I'm uh, humbled to be in such a gust company. And Really looking forward to what should be a really, I think, wide-ranging, uh, interesting, and thought-provoking conversation. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Ali. I know I've said this to you before, but Ali is our first male ally on our podcast. So we welcome you, and we're so grateful to have you today. Thank you so much for joining. My pleasure and my honor. Thank you. All right. Now we'll turn it over to Sarah. Hi, everybody. I'm Sarah Plana. I'm getting my PhD at MIT in security studies. And this uh, year, I'm almost closing out the year as a predoctoral fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. I focus on a lot of things related to proxy war and international security and have been a WCAPS member for over a couple of years now. So I am just thrilled to be here with all of you. Thank you so much, Sarah. And, and just a, a quick note that everything that is being said on this call is kind of all in our personal capacity. So, and, and now we will go into just kind of speaking and reflecting on not only this year, but thinking back to even almost a year ago, we, this podcast started because of kind of what we had seen, just a series of, of, of murders of Black men and women. And a, a movement that had had to be started, I think, was really, really overdue. Um, and, and I think finally was being given the recognition it deserved. And a year later, ever since then, we've seen so much movement, so many organizations stepping in and and and, and, and offering 
their allyship, uh, partnering with WCAPS, even in the Organizations and Solidarity Initiative to combat racism and discrimination in their groups and in their circles, kind of making actionable commitments to the cause. But I really want to turn this question right back to each of you to reflect back on on, on what, what has been a year with a lot of pledges, a lot of commitment to action, but really, what are you guys seeing as, are, you, are we seeing any change? Have we, have we moved a step forward or have we, moved, have we made progress since last year? And I will, Sarah, over to you. Sure, I'll step in. I by no means have traced everything that's gone on, but my impression has been that, like you, Warda, I think there's been a lot of movement in the international security and foreign policy community to at least have conversations overtly that we're not having that we were not having before, and it is happening at almost every table, which I think is progress. I also think that with the new administration and the overt commitments that they have made, I think there's there's a particular approach to progress I've seen, which is representation. So there's more people at the decision-making table who maybe would not have had the chance to be there before because there is a deliberate commitment to to at least representation diversity in the ranks of the cabinet, but also I think throughout a lot of political appointments, which I have found to be a good development. I think that there's probably a lot more to be done for the inclusion side of the equation, but I think that diversity can be a productive first step, especially when a lot of these conversations and decisions were being made without these perspectives. I think the fact that these perspectives are being empowered is important and and important to note. I would also say that I think one thing that I would like to see more of that I've been surprised we haven't come to yet, but maybe is the next frontier. And I think we even want to talk about it here, which is the impact of race, the really real impact of race on decisions about foreign policy, as well as just the impact of racism in America on our ability to conduct foreign policy, which I think is, is a topic Ali wanted to point out. But I do think that we are still far away from having conver- real conversations about how race and racism play into decisions that we make in foreign policy and defense policy, even though I think progress is being made and things like the stand down at the Pentagon on extremism is an imp- like vital first step for reckoning with the aftermath of the insurrection and the uh, real patterns of white supremacy in the military. But I think there's probably a lot more to be done beyond even extremism, maybe more insidious ways uh, that these ideologies permeate or even not even, you know, white supremacist ideologies, but unthinkingness about certain people and how that can, can foster certain types of foreign policies. Yeah. Thanks, Sarah. I, I want to dig into a couple of things that you raised in, in your comments. I think you, you've given us a lot to, to unpack there and dig into. And the first thing I wanted to, to react to and comment on uh, was your, uh, your, your reflection that diversity and increasing diversity across government, uh, across organizations, private sector, um, and elsewhere is the necessary first step, but it's not the be-all, end-all uh, Exactly. Absolutely. Um, you know, two-finger fact that inclusion is, is still a goal that, you know, regardless of us 
now being in a Biden administration that has a more explicitly like forward-looking approach to increasing diversity in government. Um, there's still a long way to go to make sure that these institutions, which have historically and continue to be predominantly spaces for you know white men um, and women, but um, especially men. Um, are, are inclusive in places that, you know, are looked to as supportive of diverse individuals, diverse backgrounds. So absolutely resonate uh, with that. Um, the other point that I also want to dig into is that you know, much harder question about how we translate thinking about that, you know, addressing racism and addressing like the deeply seated injustices and prejudices that have kind of shaped American thinking and how we apply that to foreign policy decisions. And I, I love that question. I think it's so important. Um, but I, you know, from sitting inside inside the government, I, I think we're, we've got a lot of work to do and uh, kind of a chicken and the egg issue in some ways to me. We need more people from different backgrounds and diverse backgrounds who have different experiences and different views on foreign policy to be in government so that these people, myself, all of us included, can contribute, you know, our, our different perspectives on how we as, you know, foreign policy, future foreign policy leaders, current foreign policy makers, you know, might go about things differently, uh, go about policy making decisions differently and take, you know, race and diversity and equity and inclusion and apply that lens to how we think about foreign policy. This gets me excited. And I, you know, Warda and I are actually in a, in a separate um, group together working on, on a, panel conversation you know, that'll, that'll happen later on in the summer to tease out some of these, these questions related to nuclear policy making. That's a whole, a whole conversation on its own. We've been having these conversations and are thinking about ways to challenge current policymakers to apply thinking about how, how the policies that they're advocating for affect people around the globe who come from diverse backgrounds and how kind of our, our status quo way of, of doing things when it comes to foreign policy issues, uh, you know, from, from the U.S. government um, perspective, really has had a lot of negative implications and, uh, you know, perpetuated injustices around the world. So I think we're kind of at the beginning stages of those conversations in, in government. I think, well, maybe even not quite the beginning. I think with the, the start of the Biden administration, we're, we're, as you said, Sarah, we're starting to see more diverse people kind of coming and filling higher, higher positions in government. I'm seeing it all around here at the Pentagon, just from one day to the next, increase in uh, diverse people and perspectives occupying really important positions here, uh, including our uh, highest leadership. But it's going to take more than, you know, more than the work of a couple of months, definitely more than the work of a couple of years or, or an administration to really start like ingraining thinking about anti-racism and, and those, and those sorts of, hard questions um, and hard conversations into how we actually execute and implement foreign policy and like how our budgeting decisions uh, reflect our priorities and all these these really hard questions that are take a lot of time. But again, to circle back to the, uh, to my first comment, it starts with uh, increasing the amount of people from diverse backgrounds in government who are at the table. We're really, we're really kind of still at, at that stage. Um, but I, I'm optimistic and excited about our generation of foreign policy thinking and, and leadership. I think that we we have these kinds of questions that we're in mind. And these are priorities for us. So that's those the kinds of things that we're going to be looking to uh, 
kind of tens of thinking that we're going to be looking to incorporate into our decision making about foreign policy issues. Stop there for now. Well, we definitely want to turn it over to you to kind of hear your perspective on how all of this impacts foreign policy in, 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 in the global uh, international community. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, just thank you so much for the invitation. And it, it's it's not only an honor, you know, just to be in such a guest company. Lauren, we haven't met, but I, I'm hoping that we we get to meet in person uh, sooner rather than later. But you know, Sarah and Warda, I mean, I, I've known you for a long time and just have uh, just the utmost of admiration. So thank you for the invitation. Um, and also, just 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 before diving into my answer, just really want to give a shout out to WCAPS. Uh, you, you were saying that you were sort of asking each of us at the outset, you know, what steps have been taken in the past year to uh, to counter racism, systemic racism, to count, to reckon more fully with racial injustice. And I would say that one step that it's, it's an ongoing step, but I think that there are a number of organizations that really have played indispensable roles within the United States in, in recent years in surfacing new voices, more diverse voices. And and diversity from a range of perspectives. And WCAPS has really been one of the central organizations that has, uh, it's not just talking the talk about diversity, it's not just talking the talk about making the US foreign policy community more inclusive, but it really is taking uh, just a number of incredibly important initiatives. Uh, and so I, I want to salute WCAPS and I've, I've met uh, so many amazing individuals through the WCAPS community and I'm, I'm glad to be affiliated with it in any way possible. So I think that this, this conversation about the nexus of domestic policy and foreign policy is incredibly important. And uh, we were talking just a few minutes before before we hit the record button. And I, I mentioned that we, just a few days ago, it marked the anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. And and it, I, I wanted to dwell a little bit on that case because I think that it has very significant, it, it has significant implications for how we think about kind of abstract notions of strategic competitiveness and external posture. Um, it has very significant implications for, for how we position ourselves today. So Brown versus Board of Education, it's, it's a seminal uh, case, a seminal verdict. It's, it's rendered on May 17, 1954. And of course, it is, I, I think, in the main, uh, an important domestic victory. It's an important victory for desegregation here at home. It's an important victory for social justice here at home. But it had very significant foreign policy implications as well. And in fact, I, I was quite surprised to learn that when the case made it up to the Supreme Court, that the Justice Department under the Truman administration filed uh, filed a brief with the Supreme Court. And there was a very strong emphasis in the Truman administration's brief on the foreign policy ramifications of this case, uh, in addition to the domestic ones. And so in terms of the context, so World War II ends and all of a sudden the United States, it by virtue of Europe's wartime destruction and Asia's wartime destruction, the United States is thrust into a position of global preeminence somewhat by default. And by virtue of its newfound preeminence, its race relations or its problems with race relations at home all of a sudden are cast under a much harsher and, and widespread scrutiny. And the Soviet Union obviously is looking to gain uh, ideological uh, points, score ideological points. So you have a situation in which the United States is a new sort of newly preeminent power. And you also have a situation in which there's a widespread wave of decolonization that attends the, the collapse of, or that attends the, the end of World War II. And so the Truman administration says, well, goodness, um, our race relations are coming under newfound scrutiny. We have these festering issues of racial injustice here at home. And the Soviet Union is understandably needling us and saying, and as it's looking to gain ideological points with these newly decolonized peoples, the Truman administration said, if we don't get this case right, namely Brown versus Board of Education, if we don't get this case right, the Soviet Union is going to have a field day. And so 
when the case, when the verdict is finally rendered in 1954, what I found striking is a number of newspapers and a number of magazines across the United States, they, they tout the verdict. And I think it's something like an hour after the verdict was released, you had all kinds of headlines across the United States. And they emphasized the foreign policy significance. And there was one editorial, I think it was from, I think the name of the the name of the newspaper, I think it's the St. Louis Dispatch. I could be getting it wrong. I think it's St. Louis Dispatch. This uh, this editorial in the St. Louis Dispatch, it said that by virtue of having handed down this verdict, this, uh, the Supreme Court has done more for the cause of anti-communism. It's done more for the cause of restoring America's democratic example than any number of bombs, boots on the ground. But just again, and so I've, I've been reflecting a lot on that case and just sort of bringing it up to the present day. When we think about the murder of George Floyd, when we think about America's ongoing reckoning with racial injustice, well, first of all, the word ongoing. Um, when we think about uh, reckonings, reckonings by their very nature, they're never complete. Reckonings are never complete. Uh, justice is a process. It is not an outcome. It is not a destination. And so when we think about renewing ourselves at home, when we think about reckoning with all manner of uh, injustices here at home, I think it's important to think about those as processes, not as destinations. And so, um, and, and I think that President Obama used to talk about this point. He said that, you know, justice is, justice is sort of, it's always out of your, it's always out of your grasp. You're sort of, you're chasing after justice, you're trying to grasp it, but it's always out of your reach. And so I think that that reality means that we can never be complacent. Uh, we can never say that, ah, we've made, a, we've made enough progress. We've never made enough progress. We always have to do more. I guess, and now I guess this is sort of the congenital optimist in me talking, and, and perhaps I'm being overly sanguine. Um, for better or for worse, I do think that one of America's uh, strong points, and I think to sort of translate that into that abstract language of competitiveness, external competitiveness, um, I do think that one of America's advantages uh, over its history has been um, it does have a tradition of using a combination of pressure from within, and I think pressure from without, or of scrutiny from without. So pressure from within and scrutiny from without, and using those forces to engage in introspection, um, and to use that introspection as an agent of renewal, halting renewal, incomplete renewal, unsatisfactory renewal, but nonetheless using introspection to say, um, how do we bring our rhetoric closer to our reality? And I read an article, I think it was published I think it was published last June. Um, it was in the Financial Times, as, and it was an article by David Pilling, who is a—he's been a journalist with the Financial Times for a number of years. And this was at a time, of course, the June—it's June 2020. So, of course, this was this was at a time of tremendous. So, this was actually at a time when we had sort of three currents simultaneously convulsing the United States. So, we are—we in the United States—we are in the midst of an accelerating pandemic. We are in the midst of economic freefall. And we're in the midst of racial, uh, we're in the midst of, again, another reckoning with racial injustice prompted by the murder of George Floyd. And so uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was was quite intense. The, and there were a number of other movements, a number of uh, a number of movements, a number of discussions saying, how can, how can this kind of act be occurring in the United States in 2020? What's going on? And David Pilling uh, said something in, in this commentary, which I, I found at least uh, uh, uplifting. He said that he he noted the reality that the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States had inspired a number of protests, comparable protests across the world. And he talked about how the Me Too movement in the United States had inspired a number of comparable comparable movements across the world. And so David Pilling's kind of perhaps overly sanguine point, but one that I, I think is plausible. He said that this, I think his, I'm, I'm roughly paraphrasing, but he said for all of its evident traumas and failings, 
the United States does remain a moral and political touchstone for the rest of the world. And so for me, that conclusion, if you believe it, that conclusion should be a source of motivation that the steps that we take or don't take matter for the rest of the world. And yeah, you know, I and and as much as as much as it's painful when the rest of the world spotlights discrepancies between what we say and what we do, I actually would be far more concerned if the rest of the world stopped caring. I think it's important that the rest of the world cares. I um, I was having a conversation with someone, and, and I, I promise I'll stop because I, I have a propensity to ramble as I'm evincing right now. But one last point, then I'll stop. Um, I was having a conversation just a few weeks ago with a friend, and she said something to me that that it hadn't occurred to me. Uh, but, but when she put it, I said it, it just it was and I and I reflected on and I've been reflecting on this point more and more. She said, you know, yeah, the United States gets a lot of flack when there's a discrepancy between its words and its deeds. But she says, in some ways, that's actually good. And I said, well, sort of say more. What do you mean? And she said, when when China engages in mass internment of Uyghurs, it elicits condemnation, but it doesn't elicit disappointment. When Russia cracks down on dissidents. It elicits condemnation, but it doesn't elicit disappointment. And I said, "Well, condemnation, disappointment. Aren't we just aren't we just sort of engaging in a semantic game? What's the difference?" And she said, "Well, there's actually a very important difference." She said, "You don't express disappointment in somebody unless you either believe that they can and should do better, or you want them to do better. You 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 wish for them to do better." She said, "If you express condemnation, but you don't express disappointment, you probably don't really think that the object of your criticism." will do better, is expected to do better. And so she says that that expectation that at least some parts of the rest of the world had, that expectation that many parts of the rest of the world have that the United States can do better, should do better. She said it's a burden, but it's also a blessing because it means that we still have the capacity to inspire. And so it, so just by way of closing, what does it mean for foreign policy? It means that when we think about how we position ourselves, how we compete with China or compete with Russia, or how do we contribute to a more resilient post-pandemic international system, we're not going to be trusted, nor should we be, uh, with contributing to those larger system-level conversations if we can't take care of our own problems at home. And so I think that even America's well-wishers, America's allies and partners and its friends, they'll say, look, particularly after what we've seen in the past four years, I think our friends will say, well, First, demonstrate that you can take care of your own people. First, demonstrate anew that you're capable of addressing your own socioeconomic challenges. Address that narrower task before we can trust you with the bigger task of contributing to what a more resilient international system looks like. And so I think that the nexus is we should be addressing these socioeconomic challenges not only because doing so is a moral imperative unto itself, and it doesn't, it shouldn't require any foreign policy justification, but if we want a foreign policy justification, it is, you're not going to be trusted with your actions abroad, your foreign policy is not going to be credible unless you can take care of your people at home. And that means taking care of their health, their uh, assuring their basic prosperity, uh, assuring their basic dignity. And so again, there's a really, really intimate nexus between how we comport ourselves at home and how we're trusted abroad. And so I promise now I'll stop. <laughs> I wanted to just respond quickly. That was just so thoughtful. And I had a very quick reaction to it which is that when you were speaking, I think another corollary to your point is that honesty about our record and all of its blemishes is actually extremely important. And so I think that you're right to highlight the progress that has been made, but I think something that's really important in foreign policy is just honesty about the problems 
and about the fact that these problems are not new. But I think the the very act of being honest about our historical record actually gives a really important message abroad, which is that, first of all, being honest is, is something that you know, is encouraged internationally, and we should set the example of that. But I also think that being honest about our record makes it very clear that progress is possible. It is slow and sometimes frustrating, but but it is possible. And then encourages, um, especially civil society actors and others to not lose hope in other places that the United States has always been seeking a more perfect union, as you say, and it continues to, and it has been imperfect in the past, but that does not negate the fact that there are a lot of different constituencies within the United States that want want to solve the problems domestically. And it just gives more power to especially our diplomacy, especially our engagement with civil society groups abroad when we're honest about about our problems. And I guess I'll just, my other thought was that I'm just so optimistic because a lot of what Ali was talking about is reflected, I think, in the interim national security guidance out of the White House. And so it's clearly a top-down focus on restoring democracy in all of its forms, our institutions of democracy, but also pillars of diversity of thought, which is a a real core to what democracy is and involves things like diversifying the workforce, but also is just, it's related to this idea of just shoring up our ability to to continue to have diversity of thought um, and our rights and and other forms of norms and, and democratic institutions at home. Yeah, I'll just, I'll jump in here too. I think that that specific thread of being honest about our history and the power in that is such a rich one. Glad that you brought it up, Ali, and uh, that you expanded on it, Sarah, because you both were making me think, and, you know, we've, we've all been dropping the, the Obama quotes and Obama <laughs> memories in this conversation. And what I was thinking about was how in, uh, you know, back at the beginning of the Obama administration, uh, one, one example is when, you know, the president gave a speech in the Middle East or a speech to the, um, to the Arab world. He was accused of, and when addressing some of the injustices the United States had kind of perpetrated in the region in the past, he was accused of you know, apologizing for America, and that was a big you know, counter slogan um, at the time against uh, against him. And another, more maybe more recent example of pushback against you know actually telling the story of America and uh, a story that really is about the progress that we've made since then is you know the pushback against the uh, New York Times, you know, sixteen nineteen project, podcast series, and uh, educational, uh, historical uh, resources that were um, that were released along with that, and the pushback that there has been against, you know, just telling the story of America and not sugarcoating it, like telling it as it is, as it is and centering, maybe not even centering the right, but uh, putting slavery in the right context, the very important historical context that it sits in to truly tell the story of the United States of America. So, so those two examples, you know, uh, President Obama apologizing for America and a lot of pushback against the 1519 project. This also makes me think that there's there's still a very strong undercurrent in, in the United States that isn't willing or isn't interested in, in uh, allowing the truth of our history to be our strength. So that's, that's still very much a, a hurdle that has to be overcome. But I, I agree with you both that that 
should be embraced as a strength. And we're not where we were before. We're not where we need to be. There's so much more work to be done. But acknowledging the past and acknowledging our history and not uh, sugarcoating it, not leaving it out of our uh, historical textbooks and what we teach children is, is a really important part of that. Lauren, what, I just wanted to tie together what you and, and Sarah just said. I think that it's a really, both of you have, have said, have sort of gotten at something which is you know so powerful and just it, you know, in my mind, something that's, you know, that stitches together what you two said is that, you know, no one is calling for, you know, we don't want self-examination to devolve into self-flagellation. You know, no one is calling for you know, a kind of a, a self-excoriation that casts, you know, the United States as being incorrigible and incapable of progress. And so if you, if you render the judgment that you are, that you are completely irredeemable, then you don't really have much you don't have a much of you know motivation to do better to try to do better um, if you believe that you are essentially just condemned in perpetuity then your activists are not going to feel very excited uh, members of civil society writ large are not going to feel excited to to try and do better because they feel that their efforts will be for naught and so i actually think that it's you know, to the extent that we to the extent that we use an unvarnished account of our history and all of its warts and all of its flaws and all of its imperfections to the extent that we use that unvarnished history, but also uh, to Sarah's point, also data points of progress. Um, I, I think ultimately we should be using self-examination as a source of motivation to say that here's where we were in, in this, that, or the other category. Here is where we have come and here's how far we have yet to go. And so I, I think that's something that ties together what you said is we can never be complacent because, again, social justice, it's it's a process. It's not an outcome. So we can never be complacent. But I think that even when we look at, uh, I mean, some of the conversation, I mean, some of the organizations that have sprung up in recent years, I mean, I, I think if you want sort of a, a testament to progress, I mean, think about, I mean, WCAPS is a great example. WCAPS, and when I think about some of the other, you know, some of the organizations that have sprung up in recent years that have said, that we need to have greater diversity in the U.S. foreign policy community, that diversity is not about checking a box, that diversity is not just something that you do in word, it's something you have to do in deed, and you do it because you need to bring to bear different perspectives and different sources of expertise. I mean, I think that the conversation, and again, I, I, I don't want to sound overly sanguine, but I do feel that the conversation about how we make uh, the U.S. government more inclusive, how we make the U.S. foreign policy community more inclusive. I mean, some of the conversations um, and some of the actions that we've seen just, to, I would say, in the past five years um, you know, are, are pretty remarkable. And they give me the confidence that the, the tenor of conversation is changing and that there are new possibilities. And again, I, I, there's an extraordinary amount of work to be done, but I, I think that we really should we, you know, we should stay motivated. And so I, I hope that we really, you know, continue to build on the progress that we've made without losing sight of just how much there is to be done. You know, Lord, I, I know you've got things yeah. to say. We got to get your thoughts in here. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lauren. Yes. And I, I honestly, I think there's this conversation, to be honest, has given me hope. I think I've walked into this conversation a little, feeling a little, sometimes the realism can like pull you down, but but it's really important to, the way you kind of said this, Aline, the perspective you've kind of shown on how the world sees us, even if they're calling us out, that shows that they still care, that our actions still matter, what the U.S. government is doing matters to people. 
And there is, I think, the point that we reached last year, I, I think that showed us that for the first time, I felt like there was a, a wide scale, large scale kind of self-reflection going on and an ownership that we have fallen short, um, not just within the communities that were affected, but those that weren't affected. And I think that is a sign of progress. I think we, um, you know, kind of looking at our history, we can kind of, you know, see things a certain way that if we've learned something, we've learned we are imperfect. But even in this moment right now, I think it's important for us to recognize that there are places we are going to fall short. There are places that we may not realize right now that we are falling short, but we may be. And we need to be open to the idea of what can we do to do better. And I do think we reached that point last year. I, I do think there's, again, a lot of organizations that have come together, organizations like WCAPS that were born in 2017 and kind of have continued the work and taken leadership in the space. But there is progress, but we really need to focus on where we go from here in terms of action, recognizing we may be falling short. And when we kind of talk about diversifying our space, when we talk about being more inclusive of diverse voices, that gives me hope because it shows me that we're now going to introduce the new perspective that has been missing in the space before, that hasn't been able to contribute to these discussions, specifically when we're talking about implications on foreign policy. And our policies will change the moment we start introducing these new voices at the tables. Um, and that give, that is my hope. And, and that is why I think we you know, want to continue to highlight the voices of amazing policymakers like yourselves on this call today. I'm really grateful for all of you guys to be on the call. Um, I know we're heading close, uh, like, you know, close to the end of our podcast, but I did want to thank you all for these wonderful reflections. And, and I want to turn it back to each of you to kind of just give a, a final kind of reflection of where do you think we go from here? And, and what are your kind of, what gives you hope for where we go from here on whether it be addressing racial inequalities, whether it be kind of things where we may be falling short internationally right now as well. I just want to turn it over for any last minute reflections. I think uh, before we hit record, Ali had a really wonderful point. I hope he would expand on it about making sure that as foreign policy professionals, we are keeping in mind the human impact of what we do as much as possible. And I think that there are some parts of the foreign policy community where human impact is, is unavoidable. I think especially in diplomacy, especially in USAID, when you're dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis locals who you are having to interface with in order to, to further your, your agenda. But I think there's other parts of the foreign policy community that maybe there is something to be there's some project here to identify the parts of the foreign policy and defense communities that do not have the same touchstones, where the decision-making is happening at the policy level, sort of absent the conversation with locals abroad who would be affected by those decisions, and trying to bring in those voices as much as possible, at least to have to have a pers that perspective in form. It cannot always be determinative of U.S. foreign policy because inevitably there will be interests from the United States point of view that will differ from locals' interests. Um, but I think having those voices and have and 
being reminded on a day-to-day basis that what we do actually has real effect on the ground. Sometimes people's lives are affected and that it should not be this abstract game that sometimes, you know, abstract research tends to to gamify, uh, especially defense policy. But I think there is something, an interesting project here about identifying those parts of the U.S. government and new and interesting ways to infuse it with ideas about about how what you have decided to do is going to affect people on the ground. But that was my reflection to a point that Ali made earlier. So I'd love to hear his thoughts about that, too. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, first of all, I, mean, I, I, I do want to you know, just reiterate in closing again, just what a uh, what an honor, a real honor and privilege it is to um, to be here for a number of reasons. And and Lauren, I I I include you in that as well. I know we haven't I, I know we haven't met, but I've I've learned so much from from all of your reflections, and I, I really hope that I uh, have the have the privilege of meeting you in person sooner rather than later. Uh, but Sarah and Bartham, and you know, I as I said at, at the outset of the podcast, uh, I just I have just unyielding admiration for you both. I've just learned so much from you. Over the years, and admire you not only as as, as scholars but as as, as people. Uh, and so, thank you for for having me on, and thank you to WCAPS for doing what it does. Um, to the point that to the point that Sarah broached, I guess you know I spend a, I, I guess all of us in in different ways we we spend a lot of time you know thinking about somewhat abstract concepts, whether it's strategic competition or great power competition or the Future of the international system, and 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 I think that those discussions, I, I, you know, lest I be sanctimonious, I mean, I, I get excited by those conversations, and I, I find them challenging and thought provoking, and I, I, I spend most of my day thinking about those or having those conversations. But um, I do think that it is very important, um, as Sarah was saying, that we we not forget that these big, sometimes rarefied conversations, they 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 implicate human lives, and I think that. COVID-19 has has placed that reality in sharper relief than just about any other phenomenon that you could imagine. And I remember a little over a year ago when, at least in the United States, the pandemic was only just beginning to accelerate. I remember a, a few months into the pandemic, I knew a few people, uh, I maybe I knew a few people who had gotten sick, but I didn't really get the sense that the pandemic had really, really encroached upon my, sort of my own personal life. At this point on you know, May 21st, 2021, I've lost track of the number of, you know, friends and coworkers who have gotten sick, who have lost uh, parents, who've lost relatives, who have lost friends of theirs, whether to COVID-19 or to other illnesses that weren't able to be treated because of, of COVID-19 related protocol in hospitals. Uh, I know pe- so many people are have lost track of the number of people who have lost jobs, uh, who feel isolated, who feel atomized from others, who feel a sense of disillusionment. And so there's been something I've, I've kind of been weighing over the past year plus now is a, kind of this disconnect between a lot of the, the discussions that I have, kind of the nine to five conversations, a lot of the topics that I think about during that time, and the material realities of you know, family and friends. And so something that I maybe in closing, um, you know, something I want to be more intentional about in, in the coming year is making sure that as I think about issues that I really care about, whether it's the relationship between the United States and China or the just the future of the international system more broadly, just making sure that the issues that we talk about, pandemic disease, climate change, arms proliferation, and whether we have a guru, you know, an arm, you know, an arms proliferation guru among us, that human lives are at stake. 
human lives are at stake, human lives are being affected. And so I want to be more intentional, um, whether that's just in, in being more intentional in reaching out to friends, telling you know, moms and pops and my sister, you know, more regularly how much I love them, uh, but just being more intentional in in realizing that human lives are at stake and that we shouldn't let these rarefied conversations uh, undercut that point. And I think that similarly with U.S. foreign policy, making sure that uh, when we think about how we comport ourselves in the world, realizing, as, as Sarah was talking about, realizing that what we do and what we don't do uh, make a difference for people's material lives. And so I'm going to be, I'm going to try to be more intentional about keeping in mind that uh, that connection between abstract concepts and human lives uh, going forward. Yeah, I love all of what has been just shared. And you all can't see me, but I'm definitely over, you know, snapping over here uh, in response to to the themes that have come up. And I, I, I also am leaving the past year, first half of, of 2021, um, thinking a lot more about, uh, I think I've, I've I was will say I, I often even even before uh, the pandemic and the year before I often have thought about how uh, the, the foreign policy issues, the defense and national security issues that I work on on a daily basis, sometimes can can feel disconnected uh, to your point, Ellie, from uh, not only just domestic policy issues and, and for me as you know, an African American woman, I can never really never forget about the uh, the types of uh, issues that are facing the African-Americans and how those affect how I see the world and how I see foreign policy issues. But yeah, just, just having um, what, you know, was kind of a global far off issue like COVID-19, you know, become an American domestic issue and become then uh, for, for all of us, I'm sure, um, a very personal kind of issue. Um, this also, also makes me think to reiterate, really, on what's already been said, that I hope going forward that we're, all of us kind of take, take away that uh, none of these issues are, are disconnected or it, they're all interconnected and keeping track of, of what's going on abroad and, and uh, as future policy leaders, um, remembering how issues that can, issues or, you know, policies that affect other people, maybe not us, can yeah, we'll, we'll, at the end of the day, come back to become domestic issues or come back to affect us. Um, I think that just makes us, makes me feel all that more um, intertwined with, you know, kind of the fate or the, what, what's happening with other, others around the world because all of it, all of it is extremely connected. If we learned nothing else this year. It's that we can't look at other places as, you know, being far away or being over there. Um, that's not in any of our interests because not only are we not able to protect ourselves that way, but we're not we're not being uh, we're thinking of ourselves kind of part of a, a global community. So that, that's definitely a, a takeaway that I have from this past year, and hope that it's a takeaway that the you know the rest of um, not only just the U.S. government but the rest of um, of the world takes away too. That something that happens far away is just as likely or just as possible to become an issue. So we. Literally need to all, all work together. So that that is all I have to say. And I'm also really also really grateful to to be a part of this series and and able to come back and debrief and decompress lots and lots of, of issues and one thing after another this past year. This group of people and welcoming on me this time and I'm sure in the future has been really therapeutic and helped me kind of gel some of the takeaways and thoughts that I don't I don't want to forget uh, as we hopefully are, are emerging out of the other side uh, of the pandemic. And, and Lauren, I, I hear you when you say that. I think 
all, every time we do this, these podcasts, for me, I think it's just like an hour worth of therapy. <laughs> so this is wonderful. I, I really appreciate uh, all the wonderful thoughts and the contributions here. I love this idea of looking at things through a human lens, not thinking about our policy and just abstract concepts, thinking about the impact that it has on, on human lives. Um, personally, you know, kind of working on the chemical weapons issues, um, I can look at it just from an arms control perspective, or I can look at it as a humanitarian issue where we do want to prevent the use of chemical weapons because it does affect women and children and, and human lives on the ground somewhere. But also when we're talking about addressing racial inequalities and we're, when we're talking about how this impacts our foreign policy, the solution I think also is on a very human level where that is why we advocate for diversity and more diversity and more inclusion, more equity in our organizations, in our institutions, because also the change can come from human. And so I, I just want to appreciate all of you guys for, for, for such a wonderful conversation today and such wonderful, thoughtful insights. And, and also just, you know, kind of re-sparking a little bit of hope that I think was needed. So, so thank you so, so, so much. And I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Sarah, Ali, Lauren, it was a pleasure. And I'll look forward to talking to you guys again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.